Now, this is Box to Box with Rob Gilbert and Michael Edgley. Oh, what a goal! For For Chemist Chemist Warehouse. Home of real brands and real savings. And Storage King. The kings of storage moving and Absolutely fantastic! Hello and welcome to Box to Box, the show that is everything football. You're with Rob Gilbert and Michael Edgley to run the rule over the past week in the world game. First edition news with Willem van Dender and shortly and during the show we'll be joined by our 250 game veteran of the Victorian Premier League and former Notts County man Dean Hennessy and our former ITN journo turned pundit Derek Dyson. And while the Euro Carnival might be over, the football circus rolls on. So we'll review Italy's triumph against England and all the issues around it, good and bad. The epic Copper America decider and this time next week the Olympics will be underway. So first up, we'll take a close look at the Ollie Reels and Matilda's chances with Daniel Garb. We'll then chat to the Matildas Marcela Mora y Araujo about Argentina's victory over Brazil in the Copa, which surely now ends any argument about Lionel Messi's great career, missing any piece of the puzzle. And we'll wrap up the hour with one of our best-known favourite Italian Aussies, Michael Zapponi, to reflect on just why this Euro win meant so much to Italy. In the second hour, we'll begin with our old mate from the Athletic, Rob Tanner, and look back at both the many positives that came out of the Euros for England, but also the ugly underbelly it exposed with violence surrounding the final at Wembley and racism in its aftermath. More analysis on the Euros on and off the pitch with Dino and Dell. And in stoppage time, we'll look ahead to which teams we think from both the Euros and the Copper we expect to take some significant strides in the next 18 months ahead of the Qatar World Cup. Edge, did you see any of that coming? Oh, what a weekend. Winners and looners. The winners for me, um, Argentina and Leo Messi. How good was that? Copper America champions. First international trophy for the Argentinians in 28 years and on enemy soil at the Maracana. What a fantastic achievement. I know we've got a big show packed with information. We'll, we'll cover that in detail. The big losers, England, not only on the field. What about off the field? Obviously, uh, the Wembley chaos. Uh, they're fading multiple investigations. UEFA, their own FA internally, and racism and uh, it was all putrid stuff, wasn't it, Rob? Oh, it was appalling. And uh, look, the beauty of it is we've got a great friendship and relationship with Rob Tanner, and we'll ask him all the hard questions in the next hour, and he is well and truly prepared to answer them. But before we get to all that, Willem, you got plenty. G'day guys, great to be here. Let's start with something fun. Argentina and Lionel Messi have broken long-standing international droughts in winning the Copa America, outlasting Brazil 1-0 at the Maracanã. Argentina broke the deadlock on 21 minutes after a lovely long ball from Rodrigo de Paul was finished by Angel Di Maria and that was how it stowed. Argentina just struggling to find a way through but it's a long direct ball and Di Maria's in behind. Di Maria, Di Maria over the goalkeeper. Di Maria gives Argentina the lead. 21 minutes gone and Angel Di Maria... Argentina ahead in the Copa America final. It ends, as you mentioned, Michael, a 28-year wait for Copa number 15 for Argentina. Uh, that number 15 draws them level with Uruguay for the most titles. It also marks the first time in six attempts Brazil failed to win the tournament on home soil. And for Lionel Messi, after four losses in major finals, it's the international title he craved. Rob, of course, with his 2008 Beijing Olympic medal. Yes, of course, which Phil, Tim Vickery um, suggested last week was one <laughs> element you'd missed out on, but you quite deliberately not <laughs> Included it because it's an underage tournament. Oh, I don't believe it's an international title, but this one definitely is, Michael. I've got just a little anecdote. Uh, did you know they had uh, a few thousand people in the stadium? That was a very late decision. 7,000, was it? Yeah, it was something like that. But they invited the Brazilian president. He unfortunately was uh, absentee because he's had the hiccups. Serious, he's had the hiccups Mr. Bolsonaro. for 10 days in a row <laughs> and he's been admitted to hospital to try and stop him. He's, it's a serious story. He's had uh, the match. Why are you laughing? Oh, well, I just think it's a bit odd. Imagine having hiccups 10 days in a row and you couldn't go to the Copa America final. 
<laughs> uh, let's have it over to the Euros. Italy on Monday added a second European Championship to their 1968 win, defeating England on penalties 3-2 after ending extra time at one apiece. Leonardo Bonucci's second-half leveller cancelled out Luke Shaw's early opener before both Gianluigi Donnarumma and Jordan Pickford saved two penalties in the shootout. England were left to rue three consecutive misses with Donnarumma's final save off Bukayo Sacco sealing the tournament. Pressure on a 19-year-old... And now Italy win. They're European champions for only the second time. 53 years after the first. A long wait is over for the Azzurri, but not for England. It's deja vu for Gareth Southgate. Mancini's men have come to Wembley. It's going Rome, Alan. Guys, let's have a quick chat about uh, events on the pitch. I think Gareth Southgate, a lot of people have been pretty quick to slam him. Did he get his intent wrong? Should he have started with a back five? What did he do with his substitutes? For whatever reason, I think I'm the only person around who's taking a more positive view of his efforts. I think he was two kicks from uh, from glory. Uh, and then after that, we'll, uh, we'll get on to the unsavoury events from the game. But for now, your take on what happened on the pitch. Well, you, my instinct is to say that history will be a very harsh judge of his tactical uh, setup for both the match itself and the penalties. However, I do like to take a longer view and I think I'll wait to put the final judgment on it until after Qatar next year because everything will change if England win the World Cup. Well, there was so much focus on the penalties and the you know that was the outcome of the game, wasn't it? The penalties in particular, uh, the plays that he chose to uh, take penalty shots based on how they're performing in training uh, and, and, and probably with that focus is there's less... Uh, there's less sort of heat on how he set up, you know, for the match in general. And and uh, they played very defensively, didn't they, Willem? And they played behind the ball. And, and to me, they never really looked like scoring on the break uh, really after the 20-minute mark of the first half. So on the basis of that, you'd say maybe he could have had a different formation. Maybe he could have had more of an attacking lineup. You've got to win these games. Um, but uh, he did what he did. And as you said, Rob, history is going to treat him quite harshly. UEFA has opened investigations into security breaches at Wembley during the final as numerous fans broke into the stadium. FA Chief Executive Mark Bullingham has apologised for the crowd behaviour, stating his security team had never seen anything like it and that the FA will be conducting their own review. The London Met Police have been quick to state they upheld their duty, while patrons have told the BBC stewards were taking bribes for unticketed entry. Such a shame, Rob... Um, in terms of England, the team's going well. They've got a final on home soil, and when they get nice things, clearly they just they still uh, don't deserve to have them. We're a long way on from the, the sort of prime days of, of football hooliganism in the UK, but it seems that section of the British public are still as immature as ever when it comes to sport and their, their sort of mindset and, and thoughts around tribalism and pack mentality, and it's left a very sour taste after a uh, fantastic tournament. Yeah, we'll talk about this throughout the show, of course, but, you know, there's, there's the bigger issues around COVID and the fact that a lot of the live sites were shut down in the city so that ultimately Wembley became the epicentre. They had 250,000 people. How they got there, how there wasn't a ring of steel, I think the police, and this comes from being a former member of the New South Wales Police Force myself and having a long time ago um, uh, attended and and worked at events, uh, uh, the police have to have a a, a good hard look at uh, themselves and the responsibility that they hold because ultimately, regardless of whether UEFA or the FA or You're letting the fans off the hook, mate. Oh, no, Edge, I am absolutely not letting the fans off the hook. I think that that the worst uh, possible punishment should 
be meted out. They are an absolute disgrace. I have, I mean, personally, uh, one of the worst things that happened was, first of all, the blockages at the disabled entrances. So everyone who, who listens to this show knows that I have a 16-year-old son, Alexander, with cerebral palsy in a wheelchair. So I'm particularly focused on that. But one of the stories about two of the Italian fans in the Italian area after Italy scored the equaliser being bashed by skinheads in the stadium by ticketless fans, fair dinkum. Issues that have stemmed from this game have, of course, spread their roots to Australia as well. Seven West Media Chief Exec James Warburton has issued an apology after an online post stated, three black players failed in the penalty shootout. Seven promptly removed the word black, but the post history remained available for some time. Football Australia later weighed in, saying they were disappointed in the network. And guys, it's easy in times gone by to pass this sort of thing off as an intern who had maybe you know access to the social media account. But I think in terms of the social media world, we're well past that. I mean, maybe that would have flown five years ago so, so I've really got no interest uh, in the apology. Uh, that sort of thing doesn't go close to... You, know, you can't make those comments and then take it back. That That's doesn't the equivalent go of saying of with you, you, you don't racism. blame the, whoever it was for putting the graphic up behind the, the newsreader at the beginning of the news. I mean, social media is the equivalent of the broadcast media these days. Uh, Seven have to have a look at their systems to allow that to have happened without uh, checks and balances. If someone, for whatever reason, chose that form of words, I don't believe it was a racist. I just think it was a dumb thing by somebody who was just totally out of their depth. But um, there weren't enough checks and balances to prevent it from going to, to, uh, to, to, to air live. And a, uh, an Australian story to cover off on before we have a chat to Daniel Garb about the upcoming Olympics. The Matildas have lost 1-0 uh, to Olympic host Japan in their final pre-tournament friendly, going down to a Mana Iwabuchi penalty following an Alana Kennedy handball in Kyoto. The Oli Roos have also lost their final warm-up match, on this occasion 2-0 to New Zealand in Ichihara City. The Oli Roos squad this week was bolstered by an additional four players after the IOC changed the rules around athlete replacement. So now Olympians are Marco Tilio, Cameron Devlin, Lockie Wales and keeper Jordan Holmes. Michael, five losses to Tony Gustafsson. None of them competitive. Of course, the uh, the all-important big one comes up against New Zealand next week. But how are you feeling? Five losses, not a great start. No, no, we're uh, backs against the wall. And I think there's a reality around uh, the Matildas at the moment. I think there's a public expectation that they are in the hunt for this. But we're not. The reality is we're not. Um, we have to get reorganised. I think his biggest problem is the form of Samantha Kerr. Um, she's been goalless uh, for, uh, for four of those games. So... Um, I really do think that uh, he, he needs to sort of unlock her magic and, uh, and that'll be a big focus, no doubt, leading up uh, to the first game against New Zealand because if we don't win that, we're sunk. We are. All right. Daniel Garb, he's all over it. The Oli Roos and the Matildas. Stick around. He's next on Box to Box. Box to Box. For Chemist Warehouse, home of real brands and real savings, and Storage King, the kings of storage, moving and more. And this yes, this is a box to box. It's a jam-packed show this week. We'll be covering the Euros, the Copper, everything. But the Olympics are less than a week away now, and that is the story on Australian football fans' lips. And to talk about it, a man who's been across all the big sports media outlets in Australia, he's with the ABC, Daniel Garb. Welcome back to Box to Box, Garby. Thanks for having me back on, lad. No, not at all, mate. And um, so the Olympics, we'll start off with the Matildas. Um, it's been a less than uh, um, inspiring start uh, under the uh, watch of Tony Gustafsson. Uh, lots of uh, uncertainty going into the Olympics. Uh, no one has any real expectations that um, that the medal drought will be broken. Do you? Not at this stage, unfortunately. Um, they yet to win a game under Tony Gustafsson. So... It's, uh, it's hard to have a whole lot of confidence 
look, that first game against New Zealand, they'll go in as favourites. Perhaps if they turn it on there, that will be the catalyst for a lot of confidence to ensue and they can go on a surprising run and, and maybe nab one. But it's hard to see it happening. You know, they just don't seem fully confident enough in their balance between defence and attack right now. Formations are changing. Players are switching positions. They just don't seem settled enough. And, and that's a shame because the squad settled. It's been together for a long period of time now. It's talented. Maybe the coaching changes have just taken it's their toll. You know, Adam Sajic leaving, Ante Milicic filling in and then choosing to take the MacArthur position forces another change. And, and they just don't seem settled in what they're doing. And, and now they're starting to talk about looking ahead to the, the Home World Cup, which is understandable, but the Olympics is enormous. And you know, they've got two cracks that are doing something with this, this group of players that is, that is excellent, making the most of a player like Sammy Kerr, who's a once-in-a-generation talent. And at the moment, it feels as if it's going to be all eggs in the basket of the Home World Cup and, and the Olympics might come and go without much being achieved. So at the moment, yeah, it's, it's a little bit disheartening. Daniel, um, I've got one negative item for you to comment on and then one that's probably more positive. But um, you mentioned Samantha Kerr. Um, she had a wonderful season with Chelsea. She did have a slow start with Chelsea but uh, ended up uh, winning the goal-scoring golden boot uh, and uh, and all the trophies with Chelsea. Um, but it, it, for Australia at international level, uh, of recent times, um, there's been a bit of a dry spell. Um, to do anything in the Olympics, she needs to score goals and do well. Do you think yeah. Gustafsson can unlock the magic of Sam Kerr uh, against New Zealand in our first game? I think he can. I think she can. She's too good to be quiet for that long. But to be honest, I think it's time for other players to give her a chop out. You know, I, I'm kind of getting a, a little bit tired of us always looking for Sam to to lead that team. She did it at the last World Cup and she lifted them. But, you know, there's quality players around her. Caitlin Ford, Hayley Razo, uh, you know, Emily Gionic's a good player who I think deserves more game time. I'd like to see these players start, start to take a bit of the pressure off Sam, you know what I mean? And, and contribute a bit more and then and Sam can go under the radar a touch and, and then start to say, all right, well, these players are doing their thing. Now I can just slot in here and, and do what I do best. So I think it's a bit harsh that we, we're putting all this pressure on her. It's understandable, but there are other good players who haven't performed enough. And uh, I think it's time for some of them to contribute with some more big goals and big moments. And for mine, Emily Gelnick should start. I think she's a difference maker. I think if you're a fullback playing against Emily Gelnick, it's the last thing you want to see, a player of that much power and presence coming up against you. So I don't know why she doesn't get more of a, a go from the start. She's seen as an impact player. I'd like to see her make an impact from the off more often. And that, I think, can, can help free up some more space and take some pressure off Sam Kerr. Gustafsson had the reputation in America for working really well with young players and the positive one that I'm going to highlight is that Mary Fowler and Kyra Cooney-Cross, they look well and truly at home at that level. Uh, I think uh, we're going to see a lot of those two uh, names in uh, Matilda's shirts going forward and um, and I'm actually quite hopeful that they'll uh, they'll do something great in the Olympics. So what, what's your initial views of their emergence in, in the Matildas? They've been touted as talented players for a while and now we're starting to see that. I think Kyra Cooney-Cross technically is fantastic. She's got wonderful touch and close control and, and Mary Fowler has a spark about her. So, you know, maybe that will be the difference maker out of nowhere. You know, throwing those players in, maybe Tony Gustafsson goes, you know what, I'm going to throw the youngsters in because we need a bit of a lift now. We need to put some of the, the settled players in the squad on notice a bit. And maybe that's a move that he can make for the New Zealand game and it, it surprises everyone and gives everyone a bit of a jolt. It feels like they need something in, the, in that regard. But either way, the future is very bright and that's exciting heading into that Home World Cup. 
This is Box to Box. We're talking to the ABC's Daniel Gubb, the Matildas. Yep, we've covered that. We cross our fingers, as we are going to do for the Ollie Roos as well. Arnie, we all know he's the most positive bloke in the world. We got a bit of a lucky break when uh, Liverpool wouldn't release uh, Mo Salah, but uh, we've got Egypt, Spain and Argentina. He's not calling it the group of death, he's calling it the group of dreams, and his <laughs> expectations are that we're going to shock the world. Uh, nothing like Arnie to talk it up a little bit, mate. Yeah, exactly right, and you can understand him doing that, but let's be honest, it's bit of a horror group for Australia, especially Argentina and Spain. I mean, Egypt may be a little bit easier now because Mohamed Salah won't be going, which was the initial fear, of course. But so they still have a very talented group of players and uh, it's going to be tough for us. I mean, the game against New Zealand tonight, that's starting shortly at the time of, of this chat. Hopefully we see some more encouraging signs from the Aussie Roos in that one and then they can give us a bit more confidence. But you only had to watch the Euros and see the likes of Danny Elmo and Pedri running around for Spain and then look at their Olympic squad and go, oh boy, this is going to be really tough. <laughs> as good a group as we might have, as much of an achievement as it was for them to qualify for the Olympics and then get popped up with guys like Harry Suter and some others, they're up against it enormously. So look, hopefully they can put in some good performances. Whatever happens above that is an absolute bonus, of course. And it'd be an amazing achievement if they if they qualified and, uh, and did a bit more than that. But, um, yeah, unfortunately, there isn't too much hope that they'll be able to get through the group. Well, it all comes down to that first game, doesn't it? Uh, we win a game in the group stage and then sneak a draw, we're, we're likely to go through. So uh, it's all about the first match against Egypt and, uh, and who knows, Harry Sutar's goal-scoring uh, record uh, may may continue, Daniel. He's... Uh, uh, for a central defender, he, he the set pieces, he's incredibly dangerous and he will be in this competition too. Yeah, for sure. I mean, he is a real asset. And and Mitch Duke, I think, is amid a tough situation where, they, you know, I think the first option of a Jamie McLaren, maybe the second option of an Akita Rukovitsa, maybe the third option of a Matthew Lackey weren't available due to per- personal circumstances and and also a club situation with Rukovitsa that he's working through right now. He went for Mitch Duke, I think he's a good leader, someone who can lead the line as well with the presence. Hopefully he can just do his job and some other talented players can feed off him. Riley McGree's another one who I can't wait to watch. I think he'll get better as the standard lifts around him, which it will do at the Olympics. So there's a squad there that's really united and has achieved a lot already, so we'll have a lot of belief. You just worry about how much talent they have in comparison to some really good teams, and we've got a really tough group. Another group, and, and we'd be talking differently, I think, about Australia getting through. But, hey, they jag something against Egypt, and, and then it's on, which would be great. So let's hope. It would be awesome if they can do something. All right. So before we let you go, mate, are you prepared to, to put your uh, predictions on the table and, uh, um, and be bold or, um, or not? In terms of where they'll both finish, the Ollie yeah. Roos and Matildas? Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, can we, could we jag a medal? I mean, is, you know... The, <laughs> Is it out of the question? We've been waiting for the Matildas to, to, to get some yeah. proverbial silverware for a long time now. I'll say the Matildas will get through the group just mm-hmm. and then get knocked out at the first knockout game. Mm-hmm. Uh, the only reason I don't think we'll make it through the group, unfortunately. I think they'll finish bottom of the group, yeah. um, which would be a shame. But, uh, you know, I think they'll give a good account for themselves. I'm not sure. I don't think we'll doubt their, uh, their chemistry or we'll doubt their commitment. I think they're just going to be shy of talent, unfortunately, against very good teams. So, yeah, I'll say the only reason won't make it through. Matilda's just because they'll beat New Zealand, I think, and maybe get a point somewhere else to get through. But then, first knockout game, the talent of 
other teams around the world is, is rising a lot and mm. we seem to have plateaued a bit. Yeah, we're sort of concerned that that top 10 position is uh, a bit of a false uh, assessment of our of our current uh, position in, in the women's football around the world, unfortunately. Well, look, Garby, thank you for joining us again, uh, mate. It's, uh, it's great to have a yarn. We'll all enjoy the Olympics because, you know, we'll probably be in lockdown for half of it anyway and we'll just cross our fingers and, and we'll just be positive because anything that uh, that isn't uh, a group stage knockout for both will be a result for us, mate. So, uh, yeah, let's hope exactly. um, they, they put in creditable performances that do themselves proud, most importantly. Yeah, they'll, they'll all be big events, all those games. I can't wait mm. to watch them and... Uh if it doesn't go away, hey, we can all be experts in the three-metre springboard after that. <laughs> and we will be. Uh, Daniel Garb, thank you, mate. All right. Thanks, lads. Okay, stick around. We are next going to talk to the Guardians, Marcela Mora Iharajo. She is a proud Argentine journalist and a proud Argentine fan. Um, she was all over the Copper America, and we're going to discuss that next on Box to Box. Box to Box. Can you for Chemist Warehouse, home of real brands and real savings, and Storage King, the kings of storage, moving and more. And this could be the most yes, this is Box to Box on Nine Radio, NTS News Talk, sport broadcasting across Australia. Well, it is a big show this week. We're talking Olympics, we're talking Euros, but we are certainly talking Copper America. And while there were largely no crowds, apart from the seven or so thousand that attended the final at the Maracanã, we know it was a history-making event all round with Argentina defeating Brazil on hostile territory. And to discuss that is one of Argentina's leading voices in football. We talked to her in the wake of Maradona's passing, Marcela Mora Iharajo from The Guardian. Welcome back to Box to Box. Thank you. Hello. No, uh, Marcela, uh, the joy, the celebration, the, the relief of Argentine, Argentine fans uh, following this result, um, how can you encapsulate it as a, a journalist? but as a, a, a person with uh, the blue and white stripes in their heart? There's so much is going on there. Uh, on the one hand, really important international title for a country that fancies itself as a kind of authority in world football but hadn't actually won anything and acknowledged for, for many years. They did. Argentina has won a, a gold medal in football um, at the Olympics, but for some reason, that's not deemed, you know, quite as the standing of what uh, the country wanted, which was a, an international title in, you know, a professional competition recognised by. But on the other hand, I think it was Messi. It was Messi's win, and Messi's um, kind of sh- shift of standing, if you like, from being the acknowledged greatest player playing today in the world but unable to somehow deliver for the country to 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 finally achieving his dream and his kind of pending assignment I think is the, is the only way I can describe it. it. It's just like something that was a massive, massive deficiency for him and for his relationship with the country and for the and for the country because he hadn't delivered it. So I think for many years, well, for, for all the years where Messi has been winning and, and 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 acknowledged at club level with Barcelona and not quite managed to um, deliver the ultimate trophy because he's, he's taken Argentina to the final, you know, several times. And I think competing in a final is... is 
is acknowledged and recognized in Argentina as quite an achievement. There's a frustration when you lose in a final, but it does mean that you were in the you know in the competition for the for the entire length of it, and you saw every game, and you stayed as long if, if fans are there or if you know the journalists are there. You you kind of you you're there for the duration. And Argentina won, um, or rather lost the final in 1990, having won every game with Maradona. And that that was always deemed as quite good, you know, as, as look how good this country is. We get to the final, if we, even if we maybe don't win it. But, but for some reason with Messi, this drought had become an issue. And, uh, and I think it led to a questioning of him and of his Argentinianness somehow, whatever that might mean. And um, and it just became like a, you know, almost an issue, an issue for people. This is Box to Box. We're talking to Marcela Mora Iharajo about the Copa America Argentina's victory over Brazil. And Marcela, one question that I did want to ask you that I, I think a particular person around all of this landscape may have been lost a little in the uh, the, the plaudits or the deserved plaudits for Messi and the players is uh, is Lionel Scaloni. Uh, he's only 43 years old. He played seven matches for the uh, the Albi Celeste. He, uh, he took over uh, as a, a caretaker manager after the failure of the 2018 World Cup. Uh, are we seeing here the emergence of, of a great Argentina manager, uh, someone who we expect to be around for a long time. Does, is he getting the credit that he deserves? Well, he certainly wasn't getting any credit at all beforehand, and he was very questioned, and I read, you know, Mayor Cooper, I didn't think um, much of, of his appointment. Uh, it just feels that the role of Argentina manager has, for, for a number of years now has been make Messi happy. Get 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 Messi to work to function, and Scaloni, he's a, he's a kind of um, non-controversial, low-profile figure, and he he worked in the team that, of 2018 that was a complete disaster. Where Sampaoli then was fired, and something happened there that was just beyond awful in in Russia in the World Cup where. There was a complete kind of breakdown of communications, of, of um, you know, institutional leadership. And Scaloni remained because I think that the, the crisis at the, at the Football Association was such that to kind of go, you know, the, the, the discourse is always, oh, we must go and talk to Guardiola, we, we want Simeone, we need Pochettino, and they're kind of punching um, above their weight in a way. I mean, it's hard to say that because clearly, you know, they have Messi and it's Argentina, but it just felt that that it was a shambolic organisation to the point that why would anybody who, A, likes football and B, likes their own job, want to go and work for them? (laughs) And so Scaloni stepped in. And in fact, he has, I think, credit to his team of of, uh, coaches and, and physical um, workers because he was working with Walter Samuel and, and Pablo Aymar who were on the bench with him and they are they are the you know excellence of Argentinian football like if you look beyond the the, the, the epic legends of Di Stefano Maradona and Messi there are always uh, interesting incredible superlative talents coming from from 
Argentina embracing the world. And, and I can't think of two more interesting than, than Walter Samuel and Pablo Aymar. Samuel was at, at, at one time considered one of the best defenders in the world, which is a, a role we rarely associate with, with excellence when we think of Argentina. And, and Pablo Aymar, I, I interviewed Messi once about 10 years ago in Barcelona and uh, it was a lovely table, coffee table book about different players and their, and their childhood for UNICEF. And he, I said, who did you admire when you were, uh, when you first started playing? And he was like, oh, I don't really watch football, no one. He's quite a strange person, but, but we insisted on a name. And he said, well, I suppose I've always enjoyed watching Pablo Aymar play. And that was like, whoa, you know, the kind of hidden, the, the hidden recognition of Pablito Aymar, that he was Messi's hero. And and what these uh, guys have done, Galani, Samuel, Aymar, and a whole team of, of people working with with youth development as well is is get together um, a, a group of, of kids that are mostly either in Argentina or recently left young and just somehow managed to, to get to a, a system going slightly away from the from the pressure of the media and from Messi. So Messi had not really participated very much in a lot of the internationals until this year when he, it obviously became apparent that he was ready for Copa and for the World Cup qualifiers and, and the team was ready for him and he just slotted in and, and played more minutes than any other player with Argentina this year and, you know, refused to sit out for any portion of any game. But somehow there was this structure there that they'd made w without him. So rather than it all be revolving around him in an asphyxiating way, I think they managed to do what has been needed for so long with Messi, which is to, to find a system in which he can be an element that, that functions more, if you like. He, he yeah, in a proper in a, a proper team environment similar to to Barcelona. Yeah, he's right yeah. from cooperative environments, and the way you get that is not by saying, uh, "You king, we will all cooperate to serve you," but rather find a risk. And I think that kind of overblown traces because I don't think it was a stunning display of football that Argentina showed. It was quite an odd combat. In many ways, it was organised for Messi to win it. You know, there was these two big groups of five, and then four teams went through. So it was really quite difficult. For could us have been very dangerous if Australia had have attended as they were meant to, Marcella. It could have been very different. <laughs> the Socceroos would have been dangerous. Hey, Marcella, obviously mucking around there. But uh, look, we we will let you go now and um, and uh, and continue to bathe in the afterglow of um, of the, the triumph. Uh, we can now look forward to the World Cup uh, in Qatar and now with the pressure off uh, his back, uh, look, who knows what might happen because it's been a few years, 2002, since the South American side last won the World Cup. Uh, uh, Argentina might be just extra dangerous. Marcella, thank you so much for joining us again. And, uh, I'd watch, I'd watch uh, for Neymar too because I think, you know, <laughs> yes. it, um the two of them gave us an incredibly powerful message about you know the, the joy and friendship and but but utter utter 
you know, desire to win yes. that these guys have. So, you know, we'll see. Yeah. Yeah, well, it, it, look, who knows? Argentina, Brazil in a World Cup final. Good happen. Marcella, thank you so much. And, uh, and we'll, uh, we'll talk to you again next time there's a, a big Argentina story, which no doubt is just around the corner. Thank you. Marcella Mora Iharawa from The Guardian. All right, stick around next on Box to Box. We're going to talk to our very own Michael Zapponi, Aussie Italian journalist. He's all over the Azzurri. Uh, he will be very pleased, the big fella, after the break on Box to Box. Box to Box. For Chemist Warehouse, home of real brands and real savings, and Storage King, the kings of storage, moving and more. Yes, this is Box to Box on Nine Radio NTS News Talk Sport Broadcasting across Australia. We talked to our good friend Daniel Garb earlier about the Olympics, Marcella Mora Iharaho about the Copper America. We're going to talk to Rob Tanner in the next hour about England, but the team that won the event, the Euros, that we've been talking about for this past month or so, was of course the Azzurri. And uh, I know I'm a ringing. I've only been married. To an Italian for 30 years uh, and I've got kids who have got half Italian blood but our next guest he is synonymous with football in this country he is uh, as Italian uh, Australian supporter as you can get his name is Michael Zapponi and everybody knows him how are you Zappers? I'm great. Thanks, gentlemen for uh, inviting me to have a chat. No, not at all mate and um, look uh, I as the boys know, I've been talking about it, uh, was down at Ligon Street at Cafe Noterno and uh, um, somehow or other we, we, we knew a friend who knew a friend uh, who, who got us in. <laughs> but it, w- it was manic. And every single time, Damien Tardio, who, who runs the panel for us, uh, we just bumped into each other randomly when we were down there. But it was such a joyful experience. And one of the points that I've made a few times is that, you know, the strongest fluid that anybody drank while we were down there was a double short black. There were no drunken scenes. They were just high on the joy of the event. Uh, so as a, you know, somebody who's grown up, uh, you know, before Australia started to do well, um, you know, the, the Italian uh, diaspora were just full on Azzurri, but now um, they've got both and the best of both worlds. Touch on so many points there, Gilbo, and uh, firstly, thanks for the invite to Cafe Nocturno because um, <laughs> I couldn't get into live on the street, but um, my, my 15-year-old son, and, and this is, you know, it was a sort of a proud dad moment, right, because uh, mm. my, my eldest was 15 and... Uh, he wanted to um, to head up to Ligon Street and uh, and watch the game. So uh, he, he slept over at one of his mates' house and they all got up at 2 o'clock and uh, they found their way to Ligon Street and uh, watched it in the piazza. And uh, it was uh, – I, I, I love how inventive we are in Australia and some bloke uh, put up his, <laughs> you know, home projector screen on the, on the piazza machine. And I know Damo's been campaigning for uh, the city of Melbourne to get involved and they didn't. But, and, and that's another story for another day. But um, – Great to see uh, so many people in the piazza and uh, my son told me that they couldn't even watch extra time because um, the data cut out and uh, they were gathered around all the restaurants surrounding um, Ligon Street to find out what actually happened during the penalty shootout. I took a a little more conservative approach and I went with my 10-year-old to a uh, pizza restaurant in Albert Park and um, Italian artisans and Mm. uh, my mate Tony Nicolini runs that and and, uh, we all watched it in there and uh, it was a fantastic night. So. It was just great to see so many different generations of uh, young Italians and older Italians uh, gathering down in Ligon Street, and um, that that bond is still so strong for us. And uh, um, you know, my grandfather came out here in the fifties, like many Italians did post-war, and uh, just to see the community come back together in uh, what's been a really tough couple of years for everyone in Melbourne, um, you know, filled our hearts with joy. And uh, this Italian team has brought. Uh, the community both here in Australia and, and, and in Italy 
so close. Um, and they play with uh, smiles on their faces. They play with joy. And, you know, I was watching one of the videos after one of the early wins in the competition and they were singing that song, um, Not Their Magic Air, you know, mm. and, and from the 1990 World Cup. And one of my mates commented and said, oh, I don't like this. They're already celebrating. Why are they celebrating? And uh, I said, don't worry. I think this bed can go all the way. And, um, you know, full credit to Roberto Mancini and, and what he's been able to do with his side because um, they're a united group and uh, they've had to come back from ground zero, you know, but to not make a World Cup, um, was was a devastating moment, and, and I remember where I was when when I was watching that game where they didn't qualify for that World Cup. So he's, he's, it's an amazing turnaround, and just to see him and Gianluca Vialli hugging and crying after the game was just uh, a beautiful moment. It sure was. This is box to box. We're talking to, I mean, synonymous with football in this country. Uh, a very proud Australian, but a very proud Italian Australian, Michael Zappone. Zappers, migrant communities are the bedrock of our sport in this country and, uh, you know, we only got to look, remember how the, the Greek Australians uh, celebrated their fantastic Europe Euros uh, victory and now it's your turn. But did you, uh, did you find yourself thinking about uh, just the people in the Italian football communities in Melbourne and Sydney and Brisbane and Adelaide and Perth and did you, did you give yourself a moment just to reflect on how they'd all be celebrating? And I imagine just in your own uh, social and family networks, your, your phone would have been going nuts, wouldn't it? Yeah, absolutely, Michael. And, you know, and, and, and part of me thought, <clears throat> you know, it's a lost opportunity. It has been a lost opportunity over the last 30, 40 years. I, I grew up in Faulkner in the northern suburbs and I played for the Faulkner Azzurri <laughs> and, uh, as a kid. And uh, we wore the, you know, the colours of the Italian national team. And, and unfortunately... We, uh, as an Italian community, uh, were, were dispersed. You know, a lot of our clubs went their own ways and, and we never really had a big, strong powerhouse team in in the National Soccer League stage. <clears throat> we had Juventus, um, who were strong at, at a point in time. But, you know, if you harness that power and energy into one united team, then, you know, we, we could have been so much stronger as, as a, a, a migrant community uh, representing our, our, our nation and our city in uh, in the world game, but um, you know, I think what the A League has done is, is united all of those tribes, and and you know, you, you go to a victory or a city game now, and you see Italians and Greeks, and and, and with Western United as well. Um, but yeah, <clears throat> I've got cousins in South Australia, and uh, and uh, you know, everybody follows the the, the Italian national team, and um, it was great to see. It was just. Uh, Fantastic to see everyone coming together. Yeah, Zappers, I've got a really controversial uh, point to make next. Um, it's a real uh, issue in, on this show is that, you know, we have the one person in the world on this show, and he's just asked you the last question, who does not like Fratelli d'Italia. Can you believe that? Can you believe <laughs> anyone doesn't think that's not the best national anthem in the world? <clears throat> I'd like to hear his reasons. Why they're not Michael? Yeah, exactly. I just can't. I just can't connect with it, and uh, it just—it's it, just one of those uh, bouncy tunes that uh, oh, I, I just God. can't connect. With. Well, Zappers, given that uh, you know that's got no credibility, that comment. It's just like <laughs> I, I love him as a brother, but he's just flat out wrong there. How proud are you when you you know you watch the beginning of uh, of a match yeah. and uh, you know uh, uh, you know the, the the players, the coaches, and they pan to the fans. It's just so robust, so uplifting, isn't they it? They sing it with their, they sing it amazingly, don't they? They give it everything. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I'd struggle to find another you know, a national team that that sings their national anthem like that. Yeah, um, with yeah. such passion. It's it's 
addictive, isn't it? It's, it's sort of, uh, it, it really gets everyone going and everyone in the stadium and it, it's sort of part of their preparation for, for, uh, for a game and, and it shows you just how passionate they are about the national team. I, I remember, you know, John Luigi Buffon singing it with such gusto as well uh, for the national team in, in years gone by and, and again, just reflecting on my 15-year-old, I, I couldn't tell you that, you know, they may will, will kill me for this, but I, I couldn't recite every word of that Italian national anthem. I know the main, you know, chorus, but my, my son, um, um, you know, in this day of social media... He belts it out, on, does he? Sits, <laughs> sits, on, sits on his computer and, and he learns it word yeah. for word. But and, Zappers, um, the thing is, the boys in Cafe Naturna, my, my Thomas, 20 years old, and Julius, his mate, Massimo, uh, they were singing it start to finish, just like your boy. Yeah, it's, it's incredible. And, you know, something we've done has, has rubbed off on them. And, um, you know, it's, it's great to see that, uh, you know, it, it'll be carried through the, the next generations. And, um, you know, I, I want to make it very clear here that we, we, we're, we're Australians mm, first mm. and uh, we're very proud uh, of, of Italian heritage. And, and it came up in a debate, Michael, you were talking about, you know, the phone going off and, and the debate and, and, and we were talking and we can all relate to this because we're from Melbourne, right? So we all love our AFL. We're, we're a Geelong yep. family yep. and uh, we all love our Italian national team and we all love the Socceroos. And the debate was on, on WhatsApp with, with the group of mates. It's like, so in what order uh, <laughs> do, you, do you put your, your team? And uh, I, I go back to 2006. I was sitting in Italy in my cousin's house in Rimini mm. watching Australia v Italy after having been in Germany to watch Australians play in the group stages. And I, I can honestly say an hour before the kickoff, I had no idea who I wanted to win that game. But when the game started, I wanted mm. Australia to win. Yeah, yeah. And that's you can't fake your heart eventually, can you? And there's yeah, nothing, there's, but there's nothing wrong with that conflict. And and uh, the only reflection I have to make about all of that is that you know I've, you and I, Zappers, we've been bumping each other at uh, soccer fields for 25 years. Um, the, the the fantastic migrant nations who built the game in this country. I mean, the relationship. It's no, no different to the South Melbourne fans who, when when you know Hellas is playing in, in, in internationals, they they have a connection. Um, and. It's a beautiful connection, but they're all the same as you. When it comes to the Socceroos, uh, it is the Socceroos because we are yeah. all Australian and, and it's that national team that brings all of those migrant communities together. And we have a bond and fellowship in the football fraternity that it doesn't matter it doesn't matter whether what your uh, ethnic heritage is. When it comes to football and the Socceroos, we have a, a tighter bond because we all share the journey, which has been fabulous. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I must add to that story that uh, once the Socceroos were knocked out, I, I was very disappointed. But my cousin said, come on, we're going out. <laughs> <laughs> so we got on the Vespa <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and we put the Italian flags over our uh, shoulders and, and celebrated uh, uh, through the streets of Rimini. So, and, and, and that's, you know, that, and that's just part of being a, you know, a multicultural, uh, uh, you know, person. Yeah, exactly right. Said it well, mate. And uh, uh, look, we didn't talk much tactics or, uh, or what no, the, hell the game went. Questions but, uh, about that, but yeah. No, but, uh, <laughs> but mate, maybe next time. Um, look, uh, you know, it was just a joyful experience, and and we loved the, the Euros, and we hey, we got the World Cup next year, and we will have the best of both worlds, just as long as they're not in the same group, and as long as uh, Fabio, Fabio Grosso is uh, nowhere in sight, um, then we'll be happy. Yeah, and look, you know, we can't wait. You know, the World Cup's, uh, you know, just over 12 months away now. That's the beauty of, uh, 
you know, the delayed Euros, I suppose, uh, end of next year we'll have uh, the World Cup and mm. Italy will have to be going into that tournament as one of the favourites. Uh, who wouldn't tip them after what we saw? Mm. And um, Socceroos, you know, a discussion for another day. It's going to be tough, for, you know, for, for the Socceroos because a lot of their games, well, probably all of their games will be played away from home given, you know, what we're considering now with, with COVID and it's going to be very difficult to get home games for the Socceroos. So, yeah, Graham Arnold's side has a, a huge task ahead of them. Yeah, well, it's all to look forward to next year. Zappers, thanks again for joining us, mate. Thanks, guys. Forza Zuri. Joel. Uh, okay, that was a big hour on Box to Box, but we've got a, another big hour coming up next. We've got Rob Tanner from The Athletic. We're going to talk Euros from the England point of view. We're going to wrap it up uh, uh, with Dino and Dell, and we're going to look forward in stoppage time to Qatar next year, some of our selections. Stick around. That's after the news on Box to Box. Now, this is Box to Box with Rob Gilbert and Michael Edgley. Oh! For Chemist Warehouse, home of real brands and real savings, and Storage King, the kings of storage, moving and absolutely fantastic. Welcome back to Box to Box on Nine Radio NTS News Talksport. It was a busy first hour. I talked to Daniel Garb, Marcella Mora, Iharao about the cop of Michael Zapponi, but. This hour, we're going to talk to our good friend from the Athletic, Rob Tanner. There's a lot of uh, coals to rake over from the England experience in the Euros. We know that, and we'll reflect on a few more thoughts ourselves, and uh, and then look ahead to Qatar in stoppage time. But Willem, you got a bunch more news. The Olympics. Uh, I know we covered a fair bit of it with Garby, but a bit more to come. Yeah, it's of course soccer is a Matilda Central for the Green and Gold Army to start. Rob, and it has been such a long time since both of our senior national teams have had such jam-packed upcoming schedules. So there's no better time, Michael, than now to join the Green and Gold Army. It couldn't be easier. It takes only two seconds out of your day to sign up to the mailing list. Where can you do that? GGAtravel.com.au. Get get along there. Sign up to the mailing list, and we'll keep you in touch with all our programs. As soon as you've got the jab, we'll be ready to go. A couple of Australians have progressed to the round of 16 in the Asian Champions League. Firstly, Mitch Langer, Action the Goya. They topped Group G with five wins and a draw. Mitch played in the first five wins. Uh, they've been drawn against Daegu of South Korea in the last 16, and Melbourne Victory fans will be able to tell you how good a side and how good a tougher proposition they will be for Mitch and Nagoya. Also progressing were Alex Grant with Pohang Steelers and Adam Taggart with Saritzo Osaka. Their sides will meet next up, although Taggart has picked up an injury. The club is keeping that under wraps. Not a lot of information coming out as yet. Another side to progress is Thailand's BG Batum United, formerly Bangkok Glass. Michael, what's the link to an Australian there? Matt Smith. No, not Matt. Is Matt Smith still there? No, Matt Smith was there for about five and a half seasons. Uh, the current link is that they are, of course, managed by Aurelio Vidmar. Yeah, Aurelio Vidmar. Next up, face the might of John Book Motor. Sorry, Rob, I should have thrown that one to you. You, of course, knew that. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I just wanted to make sure that um, you gave Edge a chance to show his knowledge. But he, he, look, he didn't get it right that time, but that's okay. He will next time, I'm sure. Well, Bangkok Glass, it's, they play in a, in a city uh, suburban stadium, which is fantastic. All the students get down there and watch them play. Uh, really, I will be a hero to them, no doubt. That's two you've missed this month after the Mamelodi Sundowns being a part of South Africa's yeah, big I throw. Yeah, I missed that. Damn, I, I knew <laughs> that one too. Over to Europe, Nikita Rukovitsa's prolific spell with Maccabi Haifa has ended. He's turned down a two-year extension with the club. The 34-year-old is now a free agent after 74 goals in 175 matches, two golden boots, league golden boots, that is, and a breakthrough league title. Not a bad stint with Haifa 
Cooper for Nikita. And over to Europe to finish, Martin Boyle scored against Arsenal in a pre-season friendly for Hibernian. And Matt Ryan's deal with Real Sociedad is official. Matt speaking Spanish in his press conference. Michael, what an impressive man he is. Um, I did see that uh, when I watched that, Rob, I, I felt that Matt Ryan's Spanish was better than his English. <laughs> well, he posted on Twitter in Spanish as well, which was impressive. So that's one way to warm to the locals. And an update on the Socceroos and our upcoming World Cup qualifiers in Australia. Football Australia and the Australian government's talks around quarantine exemptions are ongoing. Our first uh, home World Cup qualifier against China is just two months away. Uh, Football Australia is pushing for players and opposition teams to have their 14-day quarantine waived with both sides to train and play in biosecure bubbles whilst in the country. The Socceroos have lost just one qualifier in Australia since joining the AFC in 2006, but we'll have to consider uh, alternates such as the UAE or Singapore. If unable to reach an agreement, Dom Vossi broke this one in the Sydney Morning Herald. Michael, an ongoing story, uh, and it is vital, basically. Uh, That's some record, uh, but not as good outside of Australia, of course. To get uh, that game in Australia is going to be an uphill battle, but uh, let's hope that the government can find a way to make it happen, um, and I think they should. Uh, However, um, those decisions, Rob, are are not for people like you or I, but wouldn't it be great to welcome China to Australia? Mm. Well, look, credit where it's due. Football Australia has uh, um, done pretty well at the negotiating table commercially in recent times, so uh, if they can bring a similar uh, deftness to the discussions with the heads of politics, then we might be a chance of... And we need to get off uh, to a win. That group's tough. We've got to get early wins and points on the board. A couple of Big uh, European transfers I want to touch on uh, players at the top table of uh, global football. Of course, Euro player of the tournament, Gianluigi Donnarumma, signed a five-year deal with PSG, moving from AC Milan for free following the expiration of his contract. He was named player of the tournament for his efforts in goal with Italy. Uh, He didn't concede in the group stage and then saved a couple of penalties in the final uh, and a couple in the semi-final as well. He's PSG's third significant free acquisition following Sergio Ramos and Jorginho Vijnaldum. Michael, of all the clubs, surely PSG don't need to be recruiting on the cheap. They have also forked out uh, 60 million euros for Akraf Hakimi. The Italian shot stopper during the week uh, confessed that he actually didn't know that he'd won the oh, game no, for Italy. When sucker, when he saved the well, sucker penalty. Well, didn't you look at him and think, why isn't he more yeah, excited? Is he like being like, like the yeah. Iceman? Is this his yeah. thing? <laughs> so Marco Cristiano stuff. Yeah. No, I think the story was he knew he'd won it, but he was checking the VAR or the linesman to well, see the time line, which yeah. is a bit of a but anyway, bit of a I thought that was just a unique little tidbit from the weekend. Yeah, I think he'll take the winner's consolation that he didn't get it for about 10 seconds. And Lionel Messi looks to have committed his future to Barcelona. Really? Uh, reportedly signing with the club Is that the boy who cried wolf? 2026. I, was no, I wasn't brave enough to say it to Marcella. him. Not this week. But I was right, not wasn't I? Was I not right? It's I told you it happened. Not happen, this week. You leave him alone this week. But right. he'll take a 50% pay cut, Rob. A generous oh. boy to cry oh. wolf as players depart around him to free up space. Antoine Griezmann rumoured to be one such candidate. And that has, of course, been the primary focus of returning President Juan Laporta since his election in March. I don't know, Rob, I think it's quite special. There's not enough mm. players at the uh, top level of, of club football who are truly one-club players. I'd very much like to see so them play there, but I know you think differently. Yeah, no, look, it doesn't, <laughs> one-club players mean nothing to me. I would oh. like to have seen him in the Premier League. Honestly, I don't, I, it doesn't care a jot. I would have liked to have account. seen him to go, go to, to uh, the Premier League, League and play um, in, in England. That's what I wanted to see. So there you go. 
We've had a feast of uh, international football tournaments over the past couple of weeks, but it doesn't stop because the CONCACAF Gold Cup is underway in the US with Canada and Honduras, the big winners from the first match day. The Gold Cup is a 16-team tournament comprising four groups of four with Qatar an invitee as they continue the hunt for competitive games ahead of their home World Cup. For the record, they drew their first game 3-0 with Panama. And there was drama on the eve of the tournament as Curacao were forced to withdraw following a COVID-19 outbreak. They were replaced by Guatemala. And spare a thought, Michael, for Martinique. They went down 4-1 to Canada and faced the USA next. The final will be played at uh, on August the 2nd in Paradise. Uh, no, that's not Celtic Park, but Paradise, Nevada. <laughs> Let's go back locally now. The FFA Cup will feature weekend matches for the first time in an attempt to maximise viewers and attendance figures. The nine matches not featuring New South Wales were this week scheduled, although that's, of course, now going to be up in the air. South Melbourne are going to host A-League champions Melbourne City at Lakeside on the 29th of August. Uh, all other matches so far are scheduled for Tuesday and Wednesday nights with the Cup to officially return with three matches on the 11th of August and I believe they are going to be the first to be broadcast live and free under the new broadcast deal on 10 On Demand. Those matches, Hume against Port Melbourne, Joondalup against Adelaide Olympic and Lions FC against Casual Arena and as we're talking NPL football I think it's uh, the right time to acknowledge the passing of Michael Christodoulou of course the, uh, the peanut pistachio salesman mm. who's been at Bentley Green since their inception at uh, Amy Park and many, many other Victorian grounds over the he years. Was, so, uh, Vale, Michael. You're showing your age there, Willem, because I used to buy peanut... Uh, sorry, I used to buy the uh, the pumpkin seeds, the salted pumpkin seeds from Michael at Olympic Village and at uh, Churchill Reserve and Summer Street. Did you sell them candy-coated or in the shell? Uh, the pistachios? No, the peanuts, they used to be in Sydney no, when we were no, at Cumberland Oval. No, no, they weren't the candy-coated peanuts, but they were they were salted with like a bit of a chilli mix. It was pretty good. Yeah. But uh, we used to have a bit of a gag, my mates and I, because he would, he would sell so many peanuts that he's front pockets were just full of coins <laughs> and he, he used to do the, you know the old builder's crack he used yeah. to just his pants just yeah. used to only just just hold up because he <laughs> he had so many coins we, we always thought he had five or six houses he'd each uh, <laughs> he game at Olympic did. Village he'd leave with uh, with coins and I don't think they ever got uh, any royalties out of him just quietly <laughs> and speaking of Amy Park Melbourne Victory Managing Director Caroline Carnegie's informed members all home games will be played there this season effectively ending their initially successful but recently sour tenancy at the Docklands mm-hmm. now that Docklands contract I believe was signed by Jeff Lord and Ian Collins at the club's inception and it's been strongly rumoured over the years that it was worth one million per annum to the club so maybe that's one that we need to do a bit of digging on and see how the club are going to get themselves off that sort of money and their on-field revival has received a big boost this week. Jason Gary has returned to the club. Josh Berlante signed a three-year deal. And across town, Michael Little one to leave you with. John Aloisi, Western United, two seasons confirmed. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah. The uh, the former Socceroo uh, back in the A-League coaching uh, and back in Melbourne. He likes Melbourne, so he's back yeah. over in the West. And uh, I just wonder how we go with uh, Diamante and Aloisi. I wonder how they will get on. They'll get on just fine. The Italians, well. they'll blow up with each other all the time and they'll hardly <laughs> forgive each other. All right, Willem, well done. Thank you. Rob Tanner, after the break, yeah, there's a lot to go through with England. Uh, plenty on the park. Ultimately, nearly got there, the final hurdle. They just fell, but, Jesus, some ugly stories off it that we've got to talk to him about. Stick around. That's next on Box to Box. Box to Box. Can you believe it? 
Chemist. For Chemist Warehouse. Home of real brands and real savings. And Storage King. The kings of storage, moving and more. And this could be the most crucial... This is Box to Box on 9 Radio NTS News Talk Sport. We've covered lots of the Euros in the opening hour, reflecting on the result, but uh, that was from an Italian point of view largely. We now obviously want to look at it from an English point of view in every sense of the word, and the man we, of course, go to to do that is our good friend from The Athletic, Rob Tanner. How are you, Rob? I'm good, thank you, guys. And Rob, um, we need to look at this uh, event in all of its context, in the uh, uh, context of the uh, worries that we all had over Christian Eriksen when it began, the way that we saw some wonderful football throughout, uh, we saw some magnificent football stories, we saw lots of joy and happiness, and we will get to that we want to talk to you about the football but uh, sadly around the event itself the final itself there was a lot of drama at Wembley on the the day and there were uh, a lot of uh, really unsavory uh, social media posts that occurred afterwards so we want to deal with that off the top insofar as the event is concerned as well uh, we all know how well the UK England London in particular can stage big events we just look at the Olympics the question on everybody's lips is why did the Met UEFA the FA and Wembley all fail on the biggest day and it's a question that I can't answer because it baffles me as well because they knew this was potentially going to happen uh, there was reports of uh, some similar but a very small scale compared to what we saw on Sunday happen at the semi-final against Denmark, uh, some unruly behaviour. Unfortunately, it's a part of English culture, not just football culture, it's a part of our culture in this country. People drinking too much, having no respect, uh, no responsibility um, and behaving just like complete morons. And Unfortunately, I'd, it is a minority, but it's a large enough minority to cause chaos. And um, some of my colleagues were at the game, um, female, black, and they all experienced things that nobody should ever experience. And um, you know, it's, it's absolutely shocking. What gets me is they drape themselves in the uh, St. George flag and pretend that they are uh, ultimate patriots and nobody is more patriotic than them. They love England and they do more damage and bring more shame and embarrassment to the nation than anybody else, any politician could possibly do. Um, it's just uh, scandalous, really. Um, they might think it's all a laugh. And the national uh, media have spoken to uh, one or two of them who have been still have no shame, won't apologise for what they've done. And what worries me, um, the getting into the stadium without any tickets, that was pre-planned and that was organised. Um, it wasn't just spontaneous. It wasn't just uh, a load of guys drinking too much, taking drugs, and then deciding to go and... and use the disabled entrances and smash their way past disabled people and get into the disabled section and, and take, block their view. This was all planned. And yeah. something they've been doing, it's uh, something that you can do on social media, you can do on WhatsApp, you can find out what groups they're in. So that's a massive concern for the people uh, who um, uh, do the security at Wembley Stadium and for the, the Met Police who are taking no responsibility. But, you know, the lawlessness that we saw in the streets of London on Sunday before... Uh, and after, and then certainly uh, what happened inside the stadium should never be allowed to happen again. It can't. And so far as the racism is concerned, that's another uh, question, obviously, altogether. But uh, 
uh, I was listening to a couple of podcasts and, and listening to a uh, presenter who had suffered lots of racism himself over the journey and, and he was almost uh, resigned to the fact that he knew what was going to happen the moment the penalty shootout played out the way that it did. Um, insofar as dealing with these creatures, we know they exist, we know they're not going to go away. Um, what is, in your mind, the most sensible approach to, to managing the existence of racism within football? First of all, racism in society, uh, as much as it is in football, and um, that all starts with education in schools and at home. But as I said to you, it start respect and responsibility, and a lot of that, those two things are missing from our society in some areas. And um, you know, people don't take responsibility for educating their own children. You know, during the pandemic, we've seen it. You know, it's been the the poorest uh, children that has been left behind in terms of their educational structure. That's probably because at home they don't get any education. It's seen as it's the teachers that have to do it they get on with it and, and it's their fault if, if it, does it all goes pear-shaped in terms of the kids' education. So we have to get education right at the very early age and, and hopefully we can slowly eradicate it. But in terms of social media, the companies that run the social media platforms, they have to take some responsibility. They ha- I think there should be a registration system so we can tell, we can identify who's making tweets or Instagram posts and try to eradicate it. But what, what, and I know this is a massive negative, but what I love about that whole situation was Marcus Rashford was, was abused, yes, and his uh, mural was uh, defaced in Manchester. But then hordes of people mm. went to the mural and placed hearts on it and messages of support for Marcus because he's done uh, some fantastic campaigning to feed um, the, the poor kids in, in this country. That's something that no nobody should have to do. The government should be doing that. You know, I've worked at six... FIFA World Cups in a professional capacity, so I understand how things are organised. And there's no doubt that the authorities at the FA at the top of that with Wembley, the um, the police and the stadium operators didn't prepare well enough to manage that situation. However, I've seen England fans at four male World Cups and I've seen them um, be the worst behaved of any fan group in the world um, should the FA be sanctioned? Should England be t- pulled out of a major tournament to send a message to the... Uh, um, but some people say minority of English fans, but I've got to say, Rob, I think um, <clears throat> it's more than a minority. It's, it's an in- inbred culture of um, entitlement and arrogance that, uh, that really reflects well on the English nation. So should England, as, as a drastic uh, sanction, be pulled out of a tournament to send these people a message to say it's just not good enough that you can storm the stadium without a ticket? I don't know what fan who doesn't have a ticket thinks it's totally OK to storm a stadium. Uh, you know, regardless of whether they've, uh, they've uh, managed the, the egress of the stadium properly or not, it, it's, it's just a, a state of mind that needs to be called out. Are you totally understandable that you could suggest that that England be pulled out, withdrawn from a future tournament, um, and, and that the idea that they are going to bid with a joint bid with the UK and Ireland for the 2030 World Cup? Now, straight after the aftermath of Sunday, I just thought that's just a ridiculous concept, you know, after what we've just seen. But the one thing I would say about that, yeah, yeah your experience is it's, it's a majority of the fans that travel, and I can totally understand that but there's millions of people at home that enjoy watching England play. And during this uh, month of the Euros, it's lifted the nation to see the team do well. Um, it's united a very divided nation as well since Brexit. Um, the feel-good factor, you see it in the street, people hanging their flags and off their cars and stuff like that. 
the galvanising force of football. We've seen it after you know, nearly two years of, of being locked down in a pandemic. It, it, it does more good. But I totally agree what you're saying about that culture. And I'd look, I, I can't believe that this is still going on from the 70s and the 80s. And now we're here now in 2021, still talking about England football fans, out, normally abroad, misbehaving, not on their own doorstep, but this time it's on their own doorstep. And that's why you can't control them. But away from England, they've got to be some sort of control of who gets, who travels, who gets tickets. Anybody identified misbehaving has their passport seized. They can't leave the shores. There must be a better way of, rather than a blanket ban on withdrawing England from a major tournament. Because that punishes the majority that enjoy those, that experience uh, and not the minority, who we know don't care. They don't care. They don't care about anybody else because we've seen that on Sunday. So it, 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 I, don't, I think that would be a heavy-handed approach. Do you get the sense that the majority of England fans that weren't um, storming Wembley or sticking flares up their bottom um, uh, will have their glass half full or half empty? Was this an opportunity missed you know, in very, very favourable conditions for England? Or do you see this as a, as a, as a milestone for Gareth and the team? I think people can see progress for this team. I mean, this is the Nations League. We've had the World Cup and now uh, the European Championships where they've um, reached the last four in all three of those tournaments. And this is a young team as well. I mean, those lads that got abused, stepping forward, taking a penalty, taking that responsibility. How young were they? I mean, Saka's only 19. The potential for this team going forward is huge. Uh, and there's, there's other young uh, lads coming through at Premier League clubs as well that can step forward. I mean, I think one of the big factors ultimately in that final was the experience of Benucci and Chiellini, the Italian centre-backs who, who were the rock, rocks for, um, for the Italian side. And that experience England don't have really. I mean, they've got Harry Kane. Maguire is not that vastly experienced. He's, he's been playing at Hull and Leicester and only recently stepped up to Man United and European level. So it's just a bit of experience. A bit of game management, I think they've got to learn. But the potential... It's huge then. I think the vast majority of football fans in England are, are, are really optimistic for the future. Obviously devastated. Um, the irony that uh, the song, you know, Three Lions, It's Coming Home, it, it was actually written about the, the, all the heartache and the fact that, you know, England fans really, their mindset is, we know we're not going to win, but we have the hope. We always have the hope because, you know, we've had so many penalty heartaches and, and knockouts on, in controversial fashion and things like that, but we'll keep going. And so I know it was adopted as, and seen as an arrogant thing by uh, players of the other of other nations. There, Casper Michael said it, Denmark, and uh, Modric has said it, Croatia. But ultimately, that that song is a, a, a tongue-in-cheek song about how we know we're not going to win. You know, we know we know we're always going to throw it away. How we know it's always going to end in heartache, but we keep going and we keep believing. And um, I think it was another example of that with the, the penalty shootout. I mean, Jordan Pickford saved two pens. Normally, when you keep a saves two out of five in a penalty shootout, you've got a great chance of, of winning it. But unfortunately, the three lads, um, in controversial fashion, I have to say, give, being given the penalties coming on, uh, two of them coming on as subs late on, and then not in tune to the game, haven't got a touch of the ball, and they're stepping up to take a pressure penalty like that. It's incredible. Yeah, and looking to uh, the FIFA World Cup, there is a chance of an amendment there, you know, atonement uh, in Qatar. You mentioned about game management. Do you get the sense... Uh, as ridiculous as it sounds, that the goal came too early for England and all of a sudden, with 88 minutes to go, 
they were in, in charted, uncharted territory that never been up in a final since 1966. And despite all of the good things that Gareth had brought to the team, maybe there wasn't any scenario planning around that. And as they got more entrenched and if they took hold of the game, they didn't really know what to do. What do you think, Rob? Yeah, I, 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 it felt like the um, World Cup semi-final all over again when Keanu Trippier put England ahead quite early on. And they played quite well in the first half of that game. And I thought England were the better side in the first half of the final. Second half, Mancini made changes and England and Southgate didn't respond, in my opinion. Um, Italy dominated possession. They dominated the ball. They were dictating the game. Chances were at a premium for both sides, um, I felt. But I just thought the game management, the Italian game wore on, grew. Although when we went to extra time, I thought, out of the two, the, the side that could potentially have nicked it would, would have been England, similar to the, the game against Denmark, because they were trying to push and create some opportunities then. But and the Italians looked like they were uh, fading a little bit. But um, yeah, once it goes to penalties, it's a lottery. Uh, I wouldn't say it's it's completely down to luck because there's a skill, you know, there's an absolute skill to taking a penalty and holding your nerve. And I can't think of any better way of deciding an outcome of a game. Um, but um, yeah, overall, I think that's, it's something that England have got to learn from. But they've got to come back in Qatar. I mean, Qatar's going to be a complete different scenario completely. I mean, the, the conditions over there, it's going to be it's going to be a real challenge uh, for a lot of the European nations. Um, Argentina winning their first uh, Cup of America for such a long time, that they'll they'll be galvanised for that as well. So it'll be a challenge for the European sides in Qatar. Rob. Thanks again, mate. Uh, I know we're all in furious agreement about the, the, the negatives of what happened, but we're also uh, in concord around the special relationship both of our countries have. And despite what went on on the final day and then the days afterwards, uh, uh, we all know that there's a vastly bigger picture to look at. And we wish England all the best to, to sort out this issue and, um, and carry on with all of the best that, uh, that the country has to offer, both uh, as a footballing nation and as a, a people in general, mate. So uh, thanks again for, for coming on to, to wrap it up. And, uh, mate, we'll be talking to you about the Premier League in no time. Exactly. It soon rolls around, doesn't it? Football. It never stops. It's 12 months of the year. <laughs> good on you, Rob Tanner, our good friend from The Athletic. Uh, look, we're going to talk more Euros with Dino and Dell after the break. We've got a bit of a wrap to do ourselves. So stick around. That is next on Box to Box. Box to Box. For Chemist Warehouse, home of real brands and real savings, and Storage King, the kings of storage, moving and more. And this could be the most crucial. Yes, this is Box to Box on Nine Radio NTS News Talk Sport. Great chatting with Rob Tanner. Always is one of the great things about this show since we started was uh, was meeting Rob all those years ago and having him come on the journey with us. Uh, we're going to talk more Euros with Dino and Dell in a moment, but before we do, this show wouldn't exist without our very good friends. Of course, they're from Chemist Warehouse. You can save right now on sports nutrition at Chemist Warehouse. There's INC 100% WPI for just $79.99. INC 100% Dynamic Whey for only $54.99. INC Plant Pump, Protein. Pump. Yes, that's what I was waiting for. Chocolate or vanilla, two kilogram variants, just $34.99 each. And Protein World, Ka-ching. one kilogram assorted variants, now only $29.99 each. Remember, in addition to visiting your local Chemist Warehouse store, you can click and collect to save time. Order online for delivery by Australia Post and get free shipping on orders over $50. Or call and ask for same day home delivery. Fees and charges may apply. Go to Chemist Warehouse. The great savings are every single day of the week. And football is every single day of the week. Gentlemen, 
Derek and Dino. Uh, there's lots more to talk about. Derek, so we haven't had Dino's reflections on the drama off the pitch before we talk football. Dino and I know share a common philosophy around the England team and I feel like, you know, in terms of the, the supporters and the fans and the hysteria around England, and I think that was completely vindicated for the, the wrong reasons again at the weekend. It's just really poor and uh, it's going to maybe in, in, in the long term, you know, when it's, I think it's 2030, uh, that they're thinking about having, the, you know, the competition there again for a World Cup um, I don't think it's going to happen I mean I think there's got to be better places to, to hold it if, it, if that's going to happen again because I can't see everybody changing their mindset There's reliable media reports out of the UK that up to 10,000 people stormed the gates into the uh, non-ticketed people uh, stormed the gates and got into the ground we can't um, you know the football authorities cannot let that go uh, unsanctioned. Uh, I think. In, I think in, it, it's it's quite reasonable to suggest that England may be excluded from the next European Championships, and I think that has to happen because if you don't, um, that sort of behaviour is going to take off around the world. It's just completely like it, you can't underestimate how serious this is, and uh, I, I think uh, you know turning a blind eye to it and talking about you know stadium management and police response, all that sort of stuff. At the end of the, the end of the day, you know, um, people who didn't have tickets decided to organise and do that sort of stuff. It's just, it's just uh, completely uh, ridiculous, abhorrent, and and as Rob did behavior. say, it, w- w- reading articles in the Athletic, this this idea of jibbing your way into the stadium had already occurred. So why did all of these uh, feral fans or feral uh, so-called fans? know what was going on and gather in their tens of thousands, 250,000 on Wembley Way, and none of the authorities knew well, about that's, it? And, and ultimately, at the, the top of the tree, it's the, the way these things work is the, the, the FA put the event on um, and they control uh, the, the operations of the stadium in, in cooperation with the stadium operations and police. So for me, they're on the hook. And there can be no other punishment than, uh, than the, the, the strictest of sanction, which is to take them out of the next edition of the tournament. That, that, for me, that's, a, that's a, a, a proportionate response to what's happened. The English media, the FA, etc., get incredibly upset when England players are racially abused abroad, when England fans are uh, abused abroad, whether you think you, they bring that on themselves or not, it's a different question. So, you know, and, and there is a bit of a xenophobia and sort of, you know, you know being, a, being superior that comes across in that reporting, particularly when they go to Eastern Europe. But as you said, they're the worst kind of behaviour. So, you know, whatever they get, you know, I think it can, you know, can only be a good thing. Uh, on, on the pitch, Dean, um, yeah. from, from, the, uh, from the English point of view, and I'll come to Rob on, on Italy and his experiences in, in, in the town, um, do you think England would just simply too tentative after that start? And do you think Gareth needs to find some kind of plan where they can continue to, to be on the attack? Without a doubt. I mean, to score after two, possibly three minutes, it was close to that. Um, what a great start. And you just think, right, for the next 20 minutes, we're just going to go at them. And if we concede, well, then we're 1-1. And, you know, then we're going to have to work our way through the strategy. But for me, you know, that the way the way it's been, the way it's looked at most of the games I've watched, apart from the, I think it was the Ukraine game because they, they beat them quite comfortably. Um, but outside of that, it, they would play in phases where they would 
attack for a certain amount of time and then retreat back into a defensive block uh, to, to soak it up. And it was like it was like a process. And, and I found that in mostly all of the games, apart from the Ukraine one. So, um, again, the strategies worked. I mean, look, the monkey's off the back in regards to the semi-final hoodoo. We've got over that. But then the final, um, I thought it was there for the taking. And I think had England gone at, at them for the full half, um, and and then obviously, uh, and then you know Italy are going to come back, and obviously because they're a very very good side, most probably the best side in the competition, and it's proven that they're the champions. But I think it's been a definitely a missed trick here because I think you've got to when you when you get when you're on the, when you're confident and we're at, and we're going at people. They've got enough weapons there to create a lot of chances. And a second goal, if they've gone 2-0 up, I can't then see Italy maybe coming back. Rob, scenes uh, on Ligon Street. You, you would love seeing uh, you and, and, and Damo there. Um, but just from your analysis of Italy, let's big them up and talk about this team. We talked a little uh, earlier in the show with Michael Zapponi about this, and uh, look, just that cultural experience. Um, you know, having a, a you know a twenty year old son who uh, you know, even though uh, he's half Italian, you know, he expresses his Italian passion, and and he's got Italian mates, and we were all down there. And uh, the heaviest thing I saw anybody drink down at Ligon Street was a uh, you know a double short black. Uh, people were were high on the joy of the event um, so in so far as the Italian uh, approach was concerned uh, look uh, to use that technical term there was a lot of shithousery about their efforts in the, the final uh, gamesmanship if you like uh, they uh, they did everything that we expected them to do and more um, Giorgio Chiellini uh, when he pulled down uh, Bukayo Saka late was the, was the example that uh, that will be uh, forever more in our memory but uh, they they you know looked at each other puzzled when they conceded that early goal as if how the hell did that happen? And then they just regrouped. And uh, and the, the biggest uh, thing for me was just why um, England, with their foot on the throat, didn't uh, take the opportunity to to press the advantage and allowed Italy to just take control and have seventy percent plus possession and construct the game as they they wanted to. And uh, look, they were lucky. They conceded, as we know, two penalties in the in the um, in the penalty shootout and could easily have lost it. But uh, they somehow found a way. Edge. They did, they did find a way, and um, Derek, I just want to um, reflect on, you know that I like to uh, look at some of the abstract things about these events, and one of the items that uh, popped up to me, which was of very big significance, that in the UK, the, the viewing audience of the final between England and Italy uh, reached a peak of 30.95 million viewers on the BBC and ITV platforms. During uh, extra time, that was the peak, but in an average 29.85 million people. Did you know that's 82% of the available viewing audience and the, it's been the most watched event since the funeral of Princess Diana in 1997? So that gives you an example, or, or, or that's a, sorry, not an example, it's a window into just how much this England team connected with uh, with the the public in the UK and uh, it is a very uh, significant number that and um, and that's why all the shenanigans that happen um, really does take the gloss off what um, possibly was a very good achievement by England getting as far as they did. Great stat for the broadcasters that and uh, yeah look just like uh, AFL particularly in Victoria is here and rugby north of the Barassi line you know football is in the DNA of the nation and 
you know, it brings in everybody, particularly for a game like this. Not even casual fans would have been watching the game. So I can imagine fans all, you know, in the pubs or huddled around uh, TVs at home watching watching it and, and, and going through the motions. So we shouldn't forget that, you know, I'm very much in favour of a lot of what the Edge has said tonight around, um, around you know, just how, and, and the rest of the team, just around how bad those those pictures were and, and, and the events there. But there were plenty of good people who wanted England to win and they were acting sensibly and it does bring communities and families together. And let's remember that... Um, that, uh, you know, they are, they are coming out of a serious lockdown. You know, we're going back in tonight in Melbourne. They've been in lockdown for six months. And there is an element of, um, you know, no excuses, but I do feel like a pressure valve has been released. But, uh, Rob, that is the end of uh, Euro 2020. I'm sure that all of us on this pod agree uh, that um, it's been, a you know, overall a, a really compelling tournament, great standard of football throughout, compelling stories, Great goals. Lovely to wake up every morning and have a new a new football line and a new game to to watch. I enjoyed lying in bed watching a few penalty shootouts and not getting up um, because I was so gripped by it. And you know, it's not long before we get to uh, Qatar and uh, thirty days mark it until Brentford versus Arsenal, the first day of the Premier League season. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Hey, hey, well, you've said it brilliantly, mate. That's uh, we loved it, but. It's not that far away before we get to enjoy Qatar and there's plenty of football in between well, as well. Italy's uh, Chelsea players went back to Italy for the parade and then uh, quickly back to London for pre-season. Oh, yeah, that's yeah, the way that. of the world, isn't it? All right, boys, well, we're not over yet uh, on stoppage time. or well, we have stoppage time to come because uh, we are going to look forward to that event we uh, we talked about just now at Qatar. Uh, who were the teams from the Euros and from the Copper uh, in particular that uh, we think will play a big role? Who, who will, is the early favourite? Stick around. We're going to discuss that next on Box to box. Box to box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Home of real brands and real savings. And Storage King. The kings of storage, moving and more. Yes, this is Box to Box. It's been one of the most fun shows in a long time. We're coming up to 300 shows. I don't think I've enjoyed one as much as this week, reflecting on all of the events of the past seven days in football. But uh, we've got to look forward now. We're going to look forward to Qatar with the boys and a special guest. He's put the headphones on uh, and he's going to join us, Damien Tardio, in a moment. But I want to talk Storage King before we do. And a big shout-out to my very good friend, Michael Alafachi. He is a big Azzurri fan. We were texting each other during the finals. And uh, is your home running out of space for trophies? For Euro trophies, then call Storage King. Whether you're decluttering, moving or renovating, downsizing or creating a home office, Storage King, you know they've got the answer. They've got stores everywhere. There is a location just around the corner. They've got storage professionals, a crack team. They'll organise it all for you. It makes Storage King the kings of storage, moving and more. Storage with Storage King, and that will give you back some space. All right, guys, um, I'm going to sort of direct the ship here. Um, Damo, how are you, mate? Very well, thank you for uh, having me on. And what a random coincidence it was that we kept on bumping into each other down at Ligon Street. We hadn't planned it, but yeah, four consecutive planned. games we saw each other. Yeah, none of it planned, just bumped into each other after the final whistle of mm. the Belgium-Italy game and also the final. So yeah, just yeah, a random yeah, coincidence. Yeah, it was crazy, wasn't it? But uh, um, Dino and Dell are here, edges uh, on the line, and we want to look forward to Qatar. Um, and look, Dino, we're going to give you a positive way to end this conversation because, you know, we have uh, quite fairly, we all agree, um, taken the long handle to England uh, as a result of the final. But, you know, there's a lot of credit there to Gareth Southgate and to Harry Kane and the, and the, the entire squad for what they actually did on 
on the pitch to get to the final, Dino? You know, we only have to go back to uh, Euro 96 to, to, to stumble there again and then again in the World Cup um, in 2018. You know, the semi-final was always a burden. and I think getting that monkey off that back has been massive. And, and I think when they went to the final, and especially the start, you're thinking, well, here, hold on, we're, we're, we're a decent side. Um, I think we've got some really good youngsters. I think we've got a really good balance, to be fair. I think, you know, we've, we've got the, the younger players, the middle-aged players who've still got at least more time to get into another competition. I mean, it's only going to really be what? Well, Dina, the question away. I want to ask you uh, is, what does Southgate need to do to put England in genuine contention because let's not forget we've got the rest of the world coming along to this tournament um, yeah, and, uh, and England are going to have to step it up if they're going to win the, uh, yeah. the World Cup World Cup well I think I think I think he, he will have learned from this experience that sometimes when he's got a team on the, on the rack and then they let them go I think he'll change that and I think once they've done all the investigation of you know possibly what went wrong in the final that they should really, if you get in a really good position, put them to the sword and mm. finish the game off. So mm. I think if that's the only thing there, and I think, look, and I think with the, the academies around England and the younger players that are coming through the system, you know, even in the next 18 months, we might have a, a squad that's maybe is three quarters the same, mm. but then they might have all these new players that they can bring okay. in. So it's always a moving move table, isn't it? Yep, so you're, so you're positive. Derek, uh, um, who did you pluck out of the, the entire tournament as one that was a, um, a little smoky that, uh, that did some special things? It's not the traditional dark horse, but I'm going to pick out Spain. Started uh, Euro 2020 quite slowly. Uh, we're pretty, um, un, you know, as under the radar as Spain can be, weren't, weren't talked up too much by most pundits even during the tournament uh, but this Spain team were you know very close to beating the eventual champions Italy probably think that they, they should have done done that job and really what Spain has got from this is a, li- a little glimpse into the future because you know when you look at their teams um, yes that era of Xavi and Iesta has, has gone um, and yes they definitely are a sort of striker and I think that's going to probably be there for the next 18 months that they've got to scour La Liga and beyond to try and find someone that can, can go up and play. But when you think about Amaric Laporte just joining the team and he's a fine player at Manchester City, uh, when you think about the likes of, um, you know, Koke, uh, Olmo, uh, Ferran Torres, for example, these are all still players at the very start of their career. And then the one that didn't start the game against Italy but came on, Pedri, uh, what a player! Like mm. literally, what a player! He's a young years boy, old. eighteen years old, um, and every time he got on the pitch, I think he made an impact. And in eighteen months from now, he's not—he's going to be twenty years old, possibly. Mm. But and I think he'll be starting, and I think he's going to be the key player. So, if they can find a striker, uh, and and if they can, you know, develop and continue to develop those young players, um, I think Spain are in with a with a great shout in Qatar.
Okay, so England-Spain edge. North Macedonian legend Goran Pandev. Remember that when he scored his country's first goal hey, in the European Positive about Northern Macedonia. Yeah, absolutely. You could feel the diaspora of the North Macedonian communities all around the world just jump with joy. What about the gar- grasp uh, the, or the gasp of despair when it became evident that Christian Eriksen mm-hmm. had had a heart attack? That was followed by the uplifting response of the Finnish fans who chanted, Ericsson, only for the Danish fans to respond Christian. And um, I'll just leave you on this moment too. Um, Germany didn't have a great uh, tournament on the field, but uh, on the day that the Hungarian parliament passed um, anti, uh, anti uh, or homophobic laws, uh, it was the German midfielder Leon Goretzka uh, who just gave us all a bit of a shiny light on how we should behave. After scoring a late equaliser against Hungary, he, uh, he showed the heart sign of love to the Hungarian fans, just to drill in that message. So they're my three special moments from Euros. Mm-hmm. And, and, and you, was, did you end by predicting that the Dimanschaft are, are one of your... You never write them off. Like you it. never write them off. They'll have a, a fresh uh, lease of life with mm. a new manager and a new, uh, a new uh, form of going forward. Mm. So you never, ever, ever... Give the Germans a, a wide berth; they'll okay. be right in the mix. All right, and uh, and I'm going to the Copper. Um, I th- I've left Italy to demo, but uh, uh, talking to Marcella earlier on, I, I seriously think that now that the monkey's off Messi's back, uh, that there's an opportunity for them to play with freedom and to have a big, big tournament and be the first uh, South American team to win the uh, the World Cup in nearly two decades. And demo, of course, we leave the Azzurri to you. Um, do you think they can grow and build from here and when they're World Cup? Well, I'll give you a couple of names. Zaniolo, Keane, Calabria, Politano, Pellegrini, all players who didn't go to the Euros yeah. who will be able to inject a bit of ability and well, skill. Well, Spinazzola injured, hopefully. Spinazzola back. injured, exactly. You know, you'll have still Donnarumma who will be, you know, 23 years old next year. He played a lot of... Does he finish growing? Football. He's 22 years old. He's still a baby in, you know, <laughs> in, in, in life terms. But as a footballer, he's played 300 games in the Serie A. So I think with the change of mentality, they will be a real danger to come up against in the group stage, especially next year. Yeah, I think what we've seen in these two tournaments, and then let's obviously not forget Africa, Asia, uh, Oceania even, with uh, you know New Zealand, uh, a competitive side these days, uh, that we have got a lot to look forward to with Qatar. So there's been a lot of criticism and justifiable criticism about Qatar, uh, human rights, etc. However, we are trying to take the positive view that uh, you put the spotlight on the world stage onto a country and they... Deliver something positive, um, and that's what we're all hoping that they do. All right, guys. Uh, Dino, thanks again, brother. Yeah, lovely. Well done. Derek. Very good, boys. That was good. Michael. Thank you, Roberto. Thank you, Damo. And to Derek and Dino, enjoy your uh, time at home. And Damo. Campioni d'Europa. Forza Italia. Forza Zuri. Congratulations. And, of course, to Argentina, uh, the Albi Celestes champions of South America. What a great fun show it's been this week. We hope you've all enjoyed it. And uh, tell your friends and like us on uh, on your podcast provider. And please do one thing you do need to do is join us next week when we go from one end of the pitch to the other in the World Game.